I have to go out and be a leader in whatever way that I can and make change happen and fight alongside my, my brilliant fellow artists. And for things I believe in, I have to do whatever I can to have a, a bigger impact, but to do it also with hope and with possibility to say, you, you have a dream, like I had a dream to be an artist. I wanna help you find that. This may not be a life that you thought of or even thought could be for you. How do we make that happen? You, you are a gifted musician. You need to have all the opportunities. I need to be there helping all this happen. And that's that's been a great privilege and a great discovery for me. And that work has begun. And I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to continuing it, especially when we're able to be in person doing it together. Pulitzer Prize for Drama, two Tony Awards, and a Grammy for Best Musical Theatre Album are just some of the accomplishments of this week's guest, New York-based musician, composer, conductor, and orchestrator, Tom Kitt. Born and raised in New York State, Tom's musical talent was recognized by a musical teacher at age four. Lovingly raised by his mother and father, they guided him, encouraged him, and when needed, drove him to practice and remain focused on his musical dreams and ambitions to become singer-songwriter. Tom describes how an economics degree at Columbia University, meeting his now wife, Rita Pietro Pinto, and a serendipitous connection to Brian Yorkey set him on his journey to writing for musical theater and an award-winning Broadway career. Tom explains the important role that economics degree played in developing his work ethic, discipline, rigor, and attention to detail. Tom shares how, as a parent, he now passes on his learnings to his children and how they also inspire him and the courage that they have instilled in him during the pandemic. Tom describes how the pandemic has led him to write, collaborate, and record his new album, Reflect, that's released on August 13th. Tom's attitude to life is edifying. He has an ego-free recognition of the important role of collaboration, a refreshing acknowledgement on the power of his partner, Rita's love and support, and an enlightening perspective on failure. We discuss the resultant mental health impact of the pandemic on Broadway, as well as the essential role that theater, the arts, and creatives play in the economic and mental well-being of the city. Finally, we discuss Tom's uplifting anthem of Hope, O Columbia, written for Columbia's Class of 2020, performed by Ben Platt. His upcoming work with Cameron Crowe on the stage adaptation of Almost Famous, as well as his hopes for 2030. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the deeply charismatic, creative, caring and compassionate Tom Kitt. Tom, thank you very much for doing this. Much appreciated. So Pleasure. I Thanks for having me. Well, I always start by uh, thanking the person that recommends who we interview next. And in your case, it was Mariam Banakaram from Next Door who recommended that we interview you next. So it's wonderful to be able to sit down and have this conversation with you. And so. I'm very grateful to Mariam. I've known Mariam. We, we, we've grown closer in the, in the pandemic. I've known her through my wife, Rita. Um, we were, I think we met at, at, at some events and she was guiding me on, on some of the things that, that I need to be thinking about in terms of social media and just networking my, my career. But she's one of the people who suggested very early on, uh, recording a, a song from next to normal and putting it out there. And now we're both in NYC next together and doing big, exciting things. So I'm very grateful to Miriam for this and for so many things over this past, uh, year, year and a half now. Yeah, well, I'm sure we're going to come and talk a little bit about New York, uh, MIC Next, an initiative that she's been driving forward. She's just such a bundle of energy and enthusiasm and positivity. She's a fantastic addition to the city. So it's great that you're involved with her on that. So before we discuss specifics of your really extraordinary journey through as a musician, as a composer, as a conductor, an orchestrator in musical theatre, and probably so much more as well, I'd really like to uh, start with your backstory. So perhaps you could maybe just unpack that and start with your childhood from what I've 
listened to and read, I believe you were born <laughs> in a place called Port Washington, Long Island. I haven't been there. Uh, New York until 13. And then your parents, for the remainder of your childhood, took uh, Westchester, which is further upstate in New York. So maybe you could just start talking about your parental support and the impact that had on your on the journey you've taken. Well, I had a very musical household. Both my older brother and sister, Jeffrey and Catherine, were taking piano lessons when I was growing up. And every so often, my dad would get on the guitar and sing folk songs with my mom. And we always geeked out every time they did that. It was fun to watch your parents suddenly become a folk song duo. Really? Why folk songs? It's just what they were. That, that was just their, their, uh, their go-to. Well, right. Okay. A love of that music and also they could harmonize. Uh-huh. <laughs> they could do their own version of Slap and Garfunkel. Uh, right. So, so there was music in my household. My father, interestingly, was a, a former uh, Major League Baseball player. He, yeah, I read that. Yankees. Yankees and got a, got a nice signing bonus when he was at high school to join them. And he was going to college and, and playing baseball at the same time. And was a real phenom. He was a left-handed pitcher who could throw in the upper 90s. I don't know if they had radar guns the way that they do now. Wow. Really document every pitch that you throw for its speed, but he was a highly sought after rookie. And there are these great pictures of him in spring training. Uh, so I, I remember at, when I was four. That must have been giving you a lot of sort of kudos at school, being able to say that your dad's a pitcher for the Yankees. Yeah, everybody's to this day, everybody's eyes light up when you see Yeah. It. And, and there are pictures. It's, it's, there are pictures of him in spring training uh-huh. with Whitey Ford learning the grip of a certain kind of pitch. So, so it was very exciting. I, I wish I had been able to, I wish I had been able to be around to see what that was like, but there were, there were old videos or old films that, that they would put on, you know, reel to reel, if they would project on the wall, we would see soundless footage of my father on the field. So in any case, I started to just sit at the piano and play, hearing what my mother and sister were doing. And that was when my mom said, we, we've got to get him to the piano teacher, Gloria Huke. Uh-huh. Uh, who was teaching my brother and sister. And when she first saw me and I was four years old, she said, well, I don't usually teach students this young, but when I got on the piano, she said, okay, I'll teach him. So you're, you had somebody, I mean, being able to sort of um, uh, play by ear and just pick up things like that, you must've had a natural sort of talent and gift for it. Well, I found out later that I have what's called perfect pitch, which basically means that I, I describe it as the memorization of sound. I can hear a sound and tell you exactly what note it is. I don't need to figure it out on the piano. So once I was becoming more advanced in my musical studies and was learning chord progressions and and harmonic writing, I could hear then multiple notes together and figure out a progression and just sort of sit down and play something. And I didn't know what that was until my teacher told me what that was. So I think that's why I was able to play by ear so early. So I studied with Gloria and then she suggested I go study with another teacher named Patricia King, also located on Long Island. And I was pretty much classical, but I, mm. I started to, with my ear training, play pop songs that were on the radio or on MTV. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mrs. King really encouraged that. She would record me, she put a microphone by the piano and I would have this, I would have this tape that I would take home, Mozart and the Cars. I'd love to hear sort of a mix there, Mozart meets the cars. <laughs> it was basically classical with some of those elements and some writing. I would, I would experiment with writing. And then when I was 11 years old, my parents sent me to a camp called Camp Alton, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, but it was located up in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And the uh, director of the camp. A classic American summer camp. I just know this is my first experience at sleepaway camp, so maybe it was. Uh-huh. But 
what was, what was really cool about it was that it was run by a family, the Gorelnicks. And Peter Gorelnick is a leading rock journalist. He's written books on Elvis mm-hmm. Presley and Sam Cooke. And uh, so there was a great musical element there. And there was a band that was modeled on the Blues Brothers. So I suddenly went from classical to learning Ray Charles and Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. And I was starting to, to comp and to, and to solo. And it was, and at the same time, someone said to me, do you like Billy Joel? And I said, yeah, like Billy Joel, I love Piano Man. And they were like, well, do you really know, like, do you know the album or just the song? And I said, uh, the song. So suddenly I was immersing myself in really Billy Joel albums. And then I was wanting to figure all that out on the piano. So when I was supposed to be practicing my Mozart and my Beethoven, I was playing New York State of Mind and Summer Highland Falls and Street Life Serenade. And so it was, it was suddenly this new rich element of my life, which then led me to Elton John and then the Beatles and basically anyone who was writing for the piano and pop music, I wanted to learn. So uh, that's where I think the, the dream of becoming a recording artist was, was born. And, and a big part of why I wanted to go to a school that was located in the city for college was the dream of forming a band and getting discovered one night by a talent scout or an A&R representative for a label and getting a record deal and the rest is history. So these ambitions were there early on? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially because my brother, Jeff, had, a, had an enormous influence on me with his music. So, so the albums he was playing and then MTV was, was, was blowing up at the same time. So, so not only did you have the sonic dreams and, the, and, and the, that, that element to take with you, but also the visual to actually spend three days watching rock stars, not just listening to them. And MTV would have live concerts as well that they would drop on a Saturday night and so there was, there's Fleetwood Mac suddenly, and there's the Rolling Stones. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, it, it was a dream of mine to just get to sit at the piano in a big arena and play songs I've written. And that, that moment where you go into the opening of a song and the place goes crazy because they recognize what it is. I think we all dream about some form of that in our lives. It's, it seems so you mentioned the, the, the seminal role of MTV in shaping your ambition. Media consumption isn't quite the same today. So I wonder if you were growing up today how you would be influenced and where you would take that influence from and if it would have affected, if it would affect the journey that you've actually taken. It's interesting. I wonder how young, talented musicians today are gaining their influence and where it's coming from. Well, the thing that I worry about, and I watch my kids, I have three kids, so I, 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 I look at their consumption and, and their space. The thing that I'm glad that I didn't have growing up is the phone. Because the phone is all about sort of looking down and going into your own world. And it's, it's, it's constant, it's just constant engagement. Part of what I used to do is just go up and put on a record and just lie in my bed and look at the ceiling and listen Mm -hmm. or follow along with the lyrics or, or read the liner notes, just daydream, or even just take my tennis racket and I was playing the guitar. I think that things like like sitting down and taking the time to learn an instrument, working at something that doesn't give you instant gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think that there, there's, there's something lost in stillness and daydreaming mm-hmm. and not constantly f- sort of scrolling and looking for something that's going to spark you. Even watching movies that have a story that gradually builds to something. Yeah. You know, it's like, I could, I watched something with my son the other night and he said, oh, that was great. I mean, the first part of it was kind of slow, but once it got going, it's like, but the first part when they're setting up all of the drama and the relationships that are going to go awry, like that's the best part. We get to build this story and whether it's reading a book or listening to music, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I would, I worry. 
because I also think that there was, there, there's something, there's something that's, that's, that's great about sort of an artist making a statement and it's sort of going into the world and having, having a profound effect, you know, across different audiences, just something that's, that, that, that becomes iconic. And so, you know, it, it feels to me like I, and I, 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 I sometimes catch myself because I don't want to be the old dad, but a center of, of, of something that, that sparks everybody. It's undeniable. And, um, I don't, I don't always know where to find it. it there's so many different outlets and, and, and people who are, who yes, have a platform to get their music out, but because it's not necessarily coming from the same channels that we can all find it easily. I don't know, as a young artist, it would be like, yes, it's great to have responsibility that I can put out my music in whatever way I want. But I, it's also nice when you have collaborators to help you do that. Yeah, I do share your concern. I wonder if people are constantly scrolling, their attention is so stretched. We also have music is, is produced in such a way now with this, with what the studio can do. I listen to old recordings where it really does feel like you're in the room with the artist. Mm -hmm. There's, there's just a, there's a human aspect to it. And there's sometimes I'm listening to a recording today and it's just one or two instruments and a voice. And it just feels so big. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about putting on Stevie Wonder or Carol King and just hearing them at the piano and the voice. And it's just like, this could have been recorded just in a room that it could have been recorded in your house. And, and there's imperfections always because that's what the human experience is. But now we can take everything within an inch of its life. And there's, to me, there's something that's lost in, 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 in embracing our, our, our human qualities and our imperfections to make something authentic and meaningful. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's going to be a, an interesting sort of a couple of decades ahead as we start to see this generation of young talent come through and what the impact of it is and whether there is maybe a, a reject, conscious rejection either from because of the parents or because of them realizing the impact it's having. If normally the future takes us a different direction than we expect. So let's see what happens. But let's just jump back to your, your parents and your mother and your father. I mean, values are, are formed at an early age, whether you talk about your children and you must have an impact on them. What impact did your mother and father have on the values as you were developing the, your talent? They, they kept me going when I would get lazy and they would do a little reverse psychology to say, okay, if you, if you don't want to uh, do this anymore, fine. And I would say, well, no, don't, don't say that. But they really, they really drove me. And, and, and the other thing too, is that as long as it mattered to me, they supported it. No questions asked. If they could see major drive and motivation in me and real work, they were there for me. Um, it was only when they could see me just sort of, because some things came naturally to me, like playing by ear, I, I would, I could get a little lazy. I could, I could, I could sort of relax on practicing or really driving myself to, to get into pieces because, you know, I play a few times and suddenly I'd have it memorized and that would be that. So, so they, they really drove me and, and encouraged me and supported me and they were there for, for everything. There was all the recitals. They encouraged me to go to, to, to Camp Alton and then to go to Interlochen. I didn't want to, I was always nervous to go away, but they encouraged that part of me and knowing it was going to be an enriching experience. And my father, even though he's not a musician, he is in every other sense of the word, because while he's not playing an instrument, besides, as I said, the when he takes the guitar out, he's so knowledgeable about music in terms of reading, in terms of 
listening. His album collection is, is just this huge, I mean, I have so many duplicates from him, albums and CDs, great albums that he's introduced me to. So, uh, he's always kept me honest and, and I could sit down and talk with him at length and he'll say, I may not, I may not be able to put this in the terms that you would, would, would want me to, but I know what I hear. And this is mm, what I'm hearing in your writing. This is what I'm hearing in your playing. So, so they had an enormous effect on me and they, they continue to. And the other thing as well, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but as you were talking, just think about the significant change in the way that we live today and just how we discover music. I mean, you're the impact of your father introducing you. We had MTV, we had the radio. Today, with the, whether it's the Spotify or Apple Music, discovery's harder. It's more algorithmic based. Do you think that's having a, a, a detrimental impact in terms of people's sort of progression through music? Certainly anything that's meant to just reinforce your tastes and your ideas, I think could be problematic because you could just live in your same comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Part of what is so wonderful about being an artist is when you get to discover new tonalities in either what you're experiencing or what you're creating. And you only do that, I think, by new experiences. Mm-hmm. So um, it's wonderful that someone could listen to, to something that I've been experiencing and say, here's something else you're going to like that's exactly like it. But how wonderful when it's like, did you think about this? Did you think about this? And you suddenly have your mind blown by music that feels outside of what you've um, been going to your whole life or however long you've, you know, whatever period you're in. So um, I think I, I worry about any time that we're breaking down anything in terms of an equation. And I've seen that done about songwriting too, is people have actually gone in and, and, and analyzed songwriting. Could you create a sort of a computer model? Could a, could a computer spit out hit songs just based on an algorithm or based on a, a certain equation? And I, just, I, I never sit down to write something and think, I mean, form dictates itself. And I've worked in form, I've worked in AABA form and pop form. And I've worked in, in maybe what you would call, you know, arc song form, which is that it, it just keeps evolving and shake and, and changing. And there's a, just we think it's going to go to this section. You take it in a new direction. So, but, but I never, I never sit down and think, here's the form I'm going to do. I'd sort of see where my imagination takes me. Mm-hmm. And I think we want to make sure that imagination and creativity is a part of the creative process. It's not, I'm going based on what a model tells me. I'm going based on what my heart tells me. Do you ever get taken out of your comfort zone when you do new collaborations and you start a new project? <laughs> yeah, all the time. And that's a great feeling. It's a scary feeling. <laughs> but, but certainly when you're working with a new collaborator that has just as passionate uh, feelings that you do and sees it differently, that's, that can be scary because you think, well, I have my idea. And if I were just kind of left to my own advice, I would solve this. But that's what I love about theater. You all have to find common ground. And I can't tell you how many times I've become a better artist and learned something important based on someone else's point of view that, that, that took me a second to come to. But, but that's, I, I, I think that's what we all want. We don't want to be the smartest person in the room, the loudest voice in the room. We want to be one of many voices. Um, and we want to learn. We want to get better. We want to grow. You only grow when you're out of your comfort zone and, and you have a new experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, what was school like for the young Tom? What was the experience like for you? Well, I, I, I've had my ups and downs as, as everyone going through childhood does. And uh, I remember, I, I think something that was, that was sort of tr- traumatic for me and it shaped me was when I was in my, within middle school, I was, I was sort of teased and went through a period where not, I wasn't just, just teased, but I was also, they pointed at my, they would sort of go after my 
art, you know, right. my piano playing just, you know, because I would, I would play in, in recitals and do talent shows and suddenly that, you know, that would be something someone needed to knock down. Yeah. Um, and so you know, while we're going after this, let's also lump this in. And, and that was hard, but I, I think if I, if I draw anything positive from that, it's that it, 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 it instilled in me a sensitivity and an empathy that, that has stayed with me to know what it is to go through that and to, I, I have no tolerance for any kind of bullying, any kind of abuse. Um, and, um, so I came out of that experience. It was, it was hard for a couple of years. I was, I was ultra sensitive. I couldn't laugh at myself. Like I just was, was, was very, very tense, but then I got through that and I learned to really laugh at myself. But, but I think that going through that has, has, has stayed with me as an artist. And the stories I want to tell, the kind of illumination and hope and healing I want to bring to the stories I tell is for people who are going through their own trials and challenges and how they can overcome them. That's a big part of the stories that I've responded to and that I, that I like to tell. So, so that was, that, that was a, a tough, and then, and then we moved to Westchester and I made some great friends and, and had a really, you know, positive experience. I, I was, I sort of got into musical directing for the first time when we did a senior Musical my, when I was in 12th grade and, and then Columbia was, was life-changing for me going to Columbia because it's where I met my wife and it was my wife who, my girlfriend at the time, who introduced me. Rita. Rita. So I always say that I, I, I met two spouses, <laughs> Brian and Rita. I started working on, I wrote the Farsi show, which, which as I mentioned before, I had this dream of becoming a singer songwriter. But now I wanted to be a, a writer for the musical theater after work after me. So a question. I mean, I totally understand with everything you've said and the, and the, that natural sort of musical talent that was burgeoning inside you to have gone down that sort of track and done varsity shows, performed at school, but you went to study, um, economics and major, and I mean, there, where. Was there sort of some wrinkle in the matrix or something happening at that time? And, or was it your mother or father saying, look, just in case this musical career doesn't work out, here's your, here's your backstop. Well, it was certainly that, that was part of it because my father, my father after baseball then worked in antitrust for a number of years. In, in antitrust? Yeah. He worked in antitrust, um, for, uh, an economic research. That's a, that's a pivot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well. That was something he was really interested in and, 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 and really good at. And uh, so, so since his life had been immersed in economics, he suggested it. He said, this is, this would be something that I think you would enjoy. And also there's a lot you could do with it. It would just be a good thing to have to, as a backup in case the music doesn't, you know, you decide not to pursue that at a certain point. Uh, cause I really didn't know. I, 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 I didn't necessarily want a music major, although the music classes that I took at Columbia were some of the most important, I took a class. In, in Mozart and Beethoven, a, a wonderful professor named Elaine Sisman kind of, kind of changed my life, those, those, those classes. And then I took uh, a class in jazz and Duke Ellington, Mark Tucker, who also an extraordinary uh, teacher. And this just opened me up to a world of music that I hadn't discovered until that point. So I was doing that alongside econometrics and statistics. And the good thing about economics for me is that when I arrived at Columbia, I was kind of a mess as a student. I, I, I barely got in and even the first year and a half, I was sort of still in my old, or I should say my procrastination world of being a student. I was getting by as, as well as I could, but suddenly it hit me. It's like, I, I gotta work. And I had all the, and, and, and the people around me, my friends I was making, and I would see their work ethic and it 
finally rubbed off on me. And then I, I, I would say from sophomore year through to senior year, I learned how to be a student. I, and, and I think that work ethic and organization is part of the composer that I am now, the attention to detail in my writing, my notating, in, in, in running um, a department, staffing an apartment, you know, all of the stuff I do as an artist in building something, I think it's better because of how I develop my mind and my work ethic at school. So whether I do, whether, whatever I do with economics and interestingly, I think if then the musical I wrote with Brian Yorkie mm-hmm. came out of somewhat my economic studies, because this idea of opportunity cost, uh-huh. you can't do two things at once and <laughs> this, you live, may lose the opportunity to do this. That's, a, that's sort of at the center of if then this idea of, of, of does, does how much do does this one decision that you may not even see at the times being a meaningful, impactful decision, it could change the course of your life. And for me, just the decision to attend Columbia and, and, and whatever led me to meet Rita and then Brian, that changed my life. I don't, I would not be, I, I, I don't believe I would be writing for the musical theater. I like to think in the romantic world that I was always led to this path, but, but without Brian and Rita, I don't think I'm, I'm composing for the musical theater. Cause we, we, Part of reason for doing this podcast is to explore the role of serendipity in people's lives, and that does sound like a very serendipitous, tangential moment in your in your life. Absolutely. Do you think if you hadn't done economics and you'd gone purely for a musical major, your path would have been the same? I think I could have. I think certainly there was something in me that was that was tired of of not being prepared as well as I should, and I had these opportunities and. It's just something clicked that said, you have an opportunity here to, to, to learn and to grow. You shouldn't be worried about the amount of work. You should embrace the amount of work. And so as opposed to drifting through my classes and daydreaming, I suddenly started to pay attention to every word that my professor said so that I would look at my notes and not think, what was that? What I write? But I would remember every moment that I wrote it down. And then I would go and I would look at the textbooks. And I would copy down every lesson that we went through. So I actually was taking in again, all that we had learned and going over for economics, whatever problem sets and redoing them. But it's just, that's, that for me was the best way was to just keep working through things and letting your mind really adapt it. And I think that people talk about math and music being related. I think they go to different parts of your being, but there is something about practicing the piano and going over a passage over and over again until it really gets into your hands and you get it right. It's a discipline with that. Mm-hmm. You have to be committed to the work and the outcome. And that only comes with something that could seem tedious, but there's the other way to look at it is that this is exciting. I don't want to stop until I get this right. Mm-hmm. As you were talking about that moment when you started to pay attention to your professor, how do you deal, how, how do you deal with you bringing up you said three boys, is it? Uh, I have two boys and one girl. One girl. How do you deal with it being a parent, knowing that that only came to you at a certain point and it couldn't have been forced into you, even regardless of the work ethic and the efforts of your parents? How do you trust in the parental process with your children when you see maybe they're not as diligent as you would like them to be? <laughs> well, I, I, I got to say that, that my, all three of my kids work incredibly hard and they have a number of things that are pulling at them, you know, and I think in this world where there is so much stimulation, the fact that they're able to keep their heads on and 
and do their work and be driven. I think it's extraordinary and I can learn from them. I also would say that going through the pandemic, growing in the way that they did, they, they, they instilled in me a courage that I didn't have. And I found through, through them. So, so I, I, I definitely try to instill in them what I've learned and what I think I failed at to say, don't make the mistakes that I made. Don't find yourself in a position where you are needing to sort of rally in order to realize some, some, whatever is important to you. You just want to, from the beginning, be preparing yourself and doing the work so that the decisions are not, at least in what you can control, that they're not so, so scared and that you feel like you've done everything you can. And I, I, I always say that to my kids, the time is going to pass. Mm -hmm. You look at a week where you've got however many exams or how many different things that you need to be doing, you're eventually going to get to Saturday. And where do you want to be on Saturday? Do you want to think, boy, that was a horrible week. I really didn't do anything. Or do you want to be, I'm going to sleep late because I did everything I needed to. You just, the time is going to, you're going to get through it. Yes. So you've got to fight through it. But, you know, again, like going back to what I was, what I was saying, it, it can easily come off of the, in my day speech, you know, and the thing I do want to say also is that what I love about my kids is that they're passionate about music and they teach me. So through the experiences of television shows we watch or things they'll say, dad, come listen to this. They are introducing me to, there's so much great music that's being made today. And, you know, to be, to really hone it down, it's, it's, it's my worry of being able to, everyone being able to, to find it. And also, again, just in, in a, in a, in a visual world where there, where there can be such a desire for perfection, allowing our imperfections to be a part of that. And I think that happens. I think we're seeing that. I think people are fighting for those things. Yeah. But I just know that, that what, that the, the, the artists that had a major impact on me as I was growing up, I just, I just loved that feeling, that visceral feeling of something that was created in a moment and wasn't put together. Do you know what I mean? So it's a challenge. And I, I just made an album and I was very happy that I had that process to do. I was very happy that, you know, especially in the pandemic, when we're not able to do multiple studio sessions that we have things that we can, you know, the studio, the, what, what we're able to do these days can make it so much easier, but we just have to, we just have to embrace being human. Yeah. So you put together an album during the pandemic or you've just, yeah. And it's recorded. It's coming out August 13th. And it's called? It's called Reflect from uh -huh. Nina Simone's beautiful quote about it's the duty of the artist to reflect the times. Oh, I, when, when the pandemic started here in New York City, I just was, I was frightened. I was depressed and I, I did not feel a motivation to write. Mm-hmm. And then my wife and I had a conversation and, and, and she said, you know, what are you doing? What are you, what are you making right now? Like we need art, we need artists right now. How are you speaking to this? And I said, you're right. I need to do something. And I said, but I can't do this by myself. I have my own feelings and experiences right now, but this needs to be a collaboration. I need to pull in so many different feelings and experiences and thoughts and uh -huh. So I reached out to a number of my friends in the theater community and I just said, would you please, if you're interested, send me anything in any written form that you're feeling right now. And I will take that and create a song. And then I would love for you to record that song. So the album now is 13 songs, two of which 
I actually recorded myself, but mm -hmm. 11 songs were recorded by my friends. Songs, oh, and then there's two other songs that were written previous to this album. So nine songs written through this exercise of, of taking beautiful poems, essays, monologues that my friends generated and then turning them into songs. And there's a number of beautiful, visceral things that they speak to. And my friend, Scott Farthing at Sony heard this idea. We've been collaborators for, for a number of years now. And he said, I'll make that album and we'll figure out how to do it live. So wow. we had live musicians in the studio in January and we had singers in March and, and it's, and my children, two of my, my children are all on it. Michael and Julia, the two oldest are singing back up. And, and then Charlie has the last word. It's sort of a little hidden moment after, if you let the last song play, you'll hear uh -huh. something that he actually said to me early on. Huh. Uh, and it's really one of the most deeply personal and work things that I've, I've ever made. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. And, and the, each of the individual contributors, these friends of yours, are they new, all New York based or are they across the country or the world? Um, preach all New York based. Not everyone was in New York. Can we started to talk? Of course. Yeah. And only one session, a song I wrote with Adrian Warren. Adrian was on location filming. So she, we had a remote, uh, session with her, but otherwise I got to see them all in the studio. It was mainly. Oh, well, we look forward to, uh, when that's released. When, when does it, when is it, uh, it comes out August 13th. Two of the songs have already been released. Uh, the song that I, a song that I wrote with Elizabeth Stanley, who's starring in Jagged Little Pill called, was released when they announced the album in June. And then one of the songs that I recorded, Fly Away, that my son, Michael, is also singing on, was just released last week. There will be, I think there will be another release uh, next week. And then the album uh, will be released, uh, as I said, August 13th. So we'll look out for it on, on Spotify. Spotify and Apple Music. Apple Music. I don't know where, I mean, it's a, it, I'm so happy with the packaging, so I would love to say. And you can find the hard copy version here, but mm. I don't know where, I guess maybe online. Well, no. And, and where's the vinyl going to be sold? The, they made vinyl too. So that's, yeah. Yeah. It'll have to be somewhere. <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's the, what, you know, the Virgin, the Tower, Coconuts, they don't exist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going way back, Coconut. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, we'll look forward to that and we'll put that in the show notes. Go going way back, I've heard you talk about the opportunities that open up in your career from your, the other, this is serendipitous again, from connections to Dick Scanlon, Sherry, Renee Scott, and Michael Mayer that probably came off, if I understand it right, came off from let's, I wouldn't call it a failure, but a less than stellar results for one of your first musicals. You can use the word flop. Flop. Or Mike can go there. It's yeah. The my, first, yeah. My first Broadway show, High Fidelity, was I think what you'd call a flop. Which is a real shame because it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It was a pretty good movie as well. And you would have expected it to have been um, a real success. Was it just the wrong time? You know, it's, it's one of the, when, when something like that happens, you could dissect it and, and go to so many places. I, I, I think that, I think that timing, I think there was something in the idea mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. And uh, you have to look at your own work and say, there was something about what I set out to do and the idea really came from a place of great inspiration and reverence for the source material. And I just felt it was, the, it was a theatrical idea. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who have the same reverence and the same passion who just couldn't see a musical. And, and especially from my aspect, didn't know how an original score was going to speak to a story set in the world of all of these, of sort of what we call, you know, 
music aficionados oh. in a record store who have very strong opinions and are surrounded by actual music that people wanted to hear referenced. So, you know, the theatrical concept for me was to reference all of that in original songs. You recognize that little thing there, yeah. that's a nod to that song. That's a nod to that song. So I had to just sort of take the shortcomings. I, I, I don't want to use the word failure because I, to this day, I'm so grateful for High Fidelity and for that, that, that entire team that believed in the idea and did everything they could to make it work. So, so to me, it's, it's, it's an important part of my career and, and I'm proud of it, but it didn't go the way that I wanted. And so why did that happen? What was I going to learn? And I really tried to learn from that and, and, and just say, I went through this. And maybe for me also, there's having that happen the first time out gave me just a sense of, of what this life as an artist could be. You can't think that just because you put something out in the world, it's going to catch fire in the way that you intend. So just be grateful that someone believes in it to come on board with you and work with you and collaborate with you. And then it, and then it's out of your control and you just gotta, gotta see what people make of it. But I listen to that cast album a lot and it still makes me just as happy as did when I wrote those songs. What gives you the, the grit and the determination and the self-belief to carry on when things don't quite go the way you expect them to? I mean, cause you went through a a long period. I mean, you graduated in 1996 and you, you had your first, started working on Broadway in 2002. So in those intervening years, you must have been, I mean, everyone thinks that anyone with talent is just overnight success, but it takes work, determination, grit, as I say. So, you know, what has kept you going either before your first sort of opportunity on Broadway and after you said it didn't quite meet the expectations that you had? I think you just have moments that speak to you and, and, and you realize that you can't imagine a life where you don't go after those moments. First time I was in a, a room presenting a song for a bunch of actors who I was about to teach it to and seeing their faces light up and hearing the song for the first time. Being on a stage, accompanying great singers, getting the chance to, to be pulled into a creative team, taking on a new idea and all the possibilities. It's just such a, a, a privilege to be an artist. And, and I think it's more important than ever that art be in the world to teach empathy and, and for connection. So I, I just don't know what my life would be if I wasn't in pursuit of that. And I, I also just wanted to, cause you mentioned Sherry and, and, and yeah. Nick and everyday rapture. And what was so um, pivotal about that moment was I was in a rut and I was not doing anything because I had sort of put all my eggs in, in the basket of high fidelity. And suddenly I didn't have any work because I hadn't lined up anything. And I got a call from, I, I, I remember this moment. I was at an airport coming back from a wedding and I got a call just asking me if I would, you know, they needed someone to, to come and, and work out some arrangements and, and help put this presentation together. And, and I did it. And I remember the moment I walked into the theater and saw people from my industry who were there to see it. And I just thought, oh, I'm, this, this feels a little bit like I'm back. <laughs> Something exciting. I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not sad. I'm actually excited. And that became Everyday Rapture and Everyday Rapture brought me to Michael Mayer and Tom Hulse, who then pulled me into American Idiot. So again, it was, it was as with it, if then a simple decision, a simple opportunity, you, you turn into something. And those, you know, those years from 1996 to 2002, they were great years. I, I formed my band. I was playing around New York. I was trying to get a record deal. One of the songs on Reflect, Fly Away was written during that time. I did oh, really? Wow. Titled album called Find Me that, that 
that was recorded in 2000 and actually got signed to a demo deal. I went out to LA in 2001 and recorded four songs and I was playing piano bar, which some nights was fantastic. Some nights no one was there and it was a bit depressing. So where were, where, where were you performing with your band? What sort of uh, venues? Performing, uh, I worked my way up. I started, I started in a place called the Continental because I had a friend who was also playing there, which was not right for me at all. <laughs> but I, because I drew a big fan base to it because there were a lot of my friends in New York was like, we'll come see you, we'll come support. Because I heard you mention Arlene's at some point, which is at, was a great venue in the in Lower East Side. Yeah, when you when you first call them, they put you, they say, okay, how's Monday at 7? <laughs> Quiet. You have to prove that you can bring in a number of people at Monday. On Monday. Uh, I could do that, and I would get Friday and Saturday at 10 or at 9, which was great. I did the Mercury Lounge, wow. Wetlands before they closed, the Red, the Red Lion, Brownies, what else? CB's gallery, not CBGB, yeah. CB's gallery. So yeah, it was, I was just playing the circuit. And once I sort of settled in on Arlene's and Mercury because they had great sound, some nights you would go and the sound would just be, you couldn't hear yourself or you were screaming and Arlene's and, 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 and Mercury always had, had good sound. And it was also, if you were going to try to get someone from a late able to come, there were those venues that just, the your Mercury Lounge, they perked up, kind of got to. And, and I think that we, we got to a peak. We were drawing, you know, a few hundred people dreaming of bigger, maybe more. And, and then the early 2000s, it just, it just, I sort of had hit a wall. I didn't, I felt like there were people that were excited, interested, but we weren't getting pushed to that new level. And, and theater was starting to, to also really take off and I was having opportunities. So I was pursuing both. And, um, and then once I got the opportunity to be writing a Broadway show, I just sort of felt like this is where, this is where it feels like doors are opening and I, I should be. What role did Rita play in this in guiding you? Everything. A lot of those songs that I wrote on my, my, that album, Find Me, were songs about our relationship in the nineties. And there's a song called The Man I Become, which is, I remember reading at one point because I was, again, falling back on laziness and just sitting at home watching TV, not writing, not, not, not going after my dream. And, and she basically just dared me, said, said, you have to fight for, for us. If this is the life we're going to have, you have to fight for that. You have to be out and working and doing everything you can, can't be wasting away. So Rita was always there to light a fire, inspiration. When, when, when Brian, Rita and I, when Brian and I got into the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, Rita, Brian, and I went out to eat one night. I think the restaurant was at that time called Grange Hall. And we all signed a postcard, which was our way of saying, one day we're going to get to Broadway. Uh, and the other thing that Rita does, which I can't. I hope you still got that postcard. I think it's somewhere. But the thing that I can never speak to in the, the way that I, I, I would want to is what Rita has done to, to support and give me space. We raised three children together and Rita has a, a, a very important and accomplished career. She's from the Columbia Alumni Association. She's the drama chair at Marymount. She has a hugely important and intense professional life. And some, and then in the middle of that, I say, well, I'm going to go off to San Diego for a month or DC for a month. I have to go put up a musical and we have three children. And, and, and so. In those moments, just this, her, her being my partner in, in, in what that is, has meant everything. And a life of love is a life of inspiration. I, 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 I draw on my experience being married to her to illuminate the things I create. And there was a musical I wrote called Superhero with, with John Logan. That was it. At, at, yeah. Second stage, another very important show. And the superhero is a mom raising a, a young son by herself. And especially in the pandemic, thinking about 
at times Rita was again, a single mom because I had dropped out because I was trying to get through my emotional state. And that's superhero. Any single parent who is raising a child and getting them through a, a trauma, a difficult, challenging time. So, so Rita is, she fights for everyone in her life and she's taught me to fight. So I, I think that it's everything I could want from, from a marriage is, mm. is, is that we continue to grow and continue to, to be there for each other through everything. It's interesting. I mean, you, again, you mentioned that pe early period during the pandemic when you, it hit you badly and understandably, I mean, having a whole of Broadway shut down and I mean, the devastating impact on, on your industry, but it, mental health, I mean, it's something that I've spent a lot of time recently interviewing people in the hospitality industry for another podcast. And I think there are certain industries, certain sectors that have been hit worse and if, from a mental health standpoint, which is this is a pandemic in its own right, even before the, the actual COVID pandemic. But you and Brian um, were really ahead of your time um, when you created Next to Normal back in 2008, dealing with a, a subject matter that was often deemed to be taboo. The pandemic has exacerbated mental health issues and the suicide, the addiction, everything's up. Alcohol abuses are all up. Having taken such a step back in 2008 and having gone through what you've gone through recently. And how do you think your industry and the people in it are going to come out of it and what can be done to support the, everyone that works in all different aspects of the industry, not just in, in what you do, because it, it, it's, it's not something that's really been given the same level of, let's say, federal support as the restaurant industry and the airline industry. And yet as a creative sector, it's so fundamentally important to the well-being of of people in the th and, and particularly in New York City? It's a really good question. Studying economics, you learn how one thing affects another and one thing affects mm -hmm. another. The economy drive is based on so many factors. And Brian Yorkie wrote a lyric in If Then, uh, Ain't No Man Manhattan, which is just how this person buys the coffee and then shows up at the hospital as the doctor for your for your son or daughter or, you know, and, and on and on, like, like we are all connected. And for, for us artists, it's just devastating on the level of livelihood to, to just wonder how you're going to support yourself when you, that is completely taken away from you, mm -hmm. your stability to work. And also what that feeds into, because there are industries that rely on traffic to theater or traffic yeah. to live events. So, um, yeah, it's been devastating. And I've, I've also argued that in so many ways, artists are essential workers mm -hmm. because, and this is not to, I mean, the, the essential workers who in the, in, at the beginning of this pandemic were, were, were courageously going forth and allowing people to function in their lives, literally risking their lives to keep things going is, is extraordinary. But the arts is, is really an important part for mm -hmm. people's mental health, for people's imagination, and for many livelihoods mm -hmm. who rely on it. So it's interesting when you talk about it from an economic, an economic standpoint and, uh, and just that 
the, the connectivity that we all have together and that is the interdependence, let's say, of the role that theatre and creativity and your sector has on the lifeblood that flows through New York. I mean, New York would not be New York and have the romanticism and the allure for tourists, for people coming wanting to work here without what has been created combined with the, the film industry. But I think there, there's a, a coexistence of the two that contribute to make New York greater than it would be without it. And I don't think New York would be New York without that legacy. Oh, we can all feel that because we're not, the arts aren't back yet fully. And yet we feel that New York, you, there are neighborhoods that, that are thriving, but then you go into business sections or you go in, in the Midtown, the theater district, and it's, it's like a ghost town. Yeah. And, and, and so New York to really come back, you need that nightlife, the culture, the arts. And so many people tell me like how they're missing just being in the theater, how they're missing that experience. And it is something that, and I said, like in the world right now, when there's so much noise, there's so much you can get to have to focus on a storyteller. Yeah. I have to focus on art um, and to learn the ultimate lesson of empathy to, 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 to get inside someone else's experience and another story. It's just, it just has an enormous effect. And from an educational standpoint, what it provides for kids. And that's, again, getting back to why, why I say it's, it's essential. What my wife does with her students is, in my opinion, they were all really missing it. And it was hurting their education and just hurting their, as I said, their mental state. And now, thankfully, they're back doing it this, this summer. And, I, and it's, it's just changed the entire mood of the house and, and, and my kids. And I can't imagine all the kids out there who are singing and dancing and, and getting to collaborate with their friends, what, what it does. So, so I think we've really been missing it. And, 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 and just again, speaking for my, my friends who, who, you know, who we've all been through it, some who have left New York and I hope they come back. This is, this, this is, this is a business that's hard and, and it, it, it needs, I mean, just getting there, just finding your life as an artist, your stability. And then to have it all pulled away from you and to figure out how you're going to make ends meet. If we want this to come back and for these artists to resume their, their dreams and their passions, they're going to need support. Things, I mean, I think we're, I'm certainly very grateful to be in New York and to have been vaccinated and to so many people around us vaccinated because the city does have a, an element of normality, albeit we're so far from being back to normal. What's your sense of where we are? At what point do you think we might get to a moment when you sit there and think is behind us? I don't know. I, early on, I dreamed of that and I thought that's, that's going to happen, but we see this and my, my, my sort of philosophy has always been, because I've tracked this from the beginning, mm -hmm. just who I am. I'm a nervous person. I just feel like we've always been on our heels and every time we say, this is fine, we can relax, we can count on this. Suddenly there's worrisome news coming out and just wait a second, we have to go back now. And I was just, I, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm a, I'm a risk taker in my work and I like to, I'm, I like new adventures and I like to, to try things. 
But when it comes to this, I'm not risky. And so, so I just, I think that I can't imagine after going through this for the many months that we have suddenly locking everything down again, because I just don't know if we can come out of it. I don't know. I don't know how, how we survive, how the city survives, but at the same time, there's going to have to be adaptability and there's going to have to be consensus. Like there's so many different opinions and they're listening to different guidance to have those opinions. To me, it's just a simple health and a science issue. And I, and, and I believe that, and, and I'm going to do what those guidelines tell me. And I don't fault anyone who says, well, this is what I believed yesterday, but now I've seen this that makes me believe this today. I'm not going to say, oh, well, you said that yesterday. So now I don't believe you anymore. We have to allow because this is evolving and this is something that we haven't been through. So there just needs to be a clear message. But I, I, I know that I've been out, I, I've been in the theater. I've been riding the subway. I've been on the bus, things that I couldn't imagine doing a year ago because I was, you know, I would have been nervous and I'm vaccinated and I, I feel safe and, and that's allowing me to function and, and feel hope. And it's, it's very complicated. I, I, I understand that, but I know early on it was the vaccines are going to be our way out of this. And then we have the vaccines and now it has to be, how do we distribute, you know, how do we get it out there? How do we get people who are resistant to take it? And we see what's happening now where it's creeping up and the numbers are creeping up. And so, so anyway, that's a long way of saying that I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but I hope that we get to a point which felt like we were at a couple of weeks ago, which is okay. We've got, we're, we're able to control it. We can't say that it's gone, mm -hmm. but we can, we, we can live responsibly with it. But reading about people saying, well, we have to live with this, just throw everything to the wind. And that's a scary thought too, because that could be traumatic mm -hmm. or I should say that could be catastrophic. Yeah. You mentioned the word hope, we use the word hope. You composed music and lyrics for Columbia's university's class of 2020, I think, which uh, it's fair to say it's a wonderful track and a composition that I think is instills hope in, in that generation. You persuaded Ben Platt to perform that anthem of hope with you, an anthem of resilience and resurgence. I mean, it's a profoundly inspiring track that could be in its own right, an anthem, an anthemic track for the whole of New York, building on what you've just said. And I'll, we talk about the power of music and the power of the creative class. I mean, maybe we need a track, something on the level of something that unites maybe the nation. Is it something that you think that creatives can do to come together? I mean, we, I mean, I don't want to belittle things that have been done in the past, like, you know, who wants the world and Band-Aid, but sometimes anthems do bring people together and they do make people question. They do make people reevaluate. And in a world where we're completely consumed with misinformation on different platforms, something that might, that unifies artists together in an anthemic call to action might, might be something that's needed. I'd love your view. I'd love to believe that art can unite and heal and connect and, and, and bring about a common vision, a beautiful common vision. Mm -hmm. Certainly at the center of, of that song was one of healing and hope, acknowledgement that we weren't anywhere where we thought we would be and that there's loss and there's sadness. But that one of my favorite lines in the song was, go Sorry. It's okay. We're bringing back something very 
actually was one of the first things I wrote to come out of my, out of my very bad period of not wanting to write anything. And I'm, I just want to say thank you to Ben for, for doing that because I, I would just, I would just watch the video and feel like I, I made something again. I'm speaking to an audience. Yeah. It was hugely important. And I'm so grateful to him for just saying yes. Anyway, the line I was going to reference was though we can't all sing together, we can still sing as one. Yeah. That's great. Wonderful line. Which was literally about all those students who worked so hard and were expecting to walk with their friends and however, sitting in front of computers, but they, but, but I had to tell them you, you, you can still, you can still be in space with one another. You can still feel mm. that camaraderie and that love and that accomplishment and that light. So it was very important for me and um, I'm really proud of it. And when I'm, I'm also glad that my, my, my good friend, Donna McPhee, who, who works at Columbia and, and was the one who actually brought the idea to me and asked me to, to write it, is continuing to have a song and play a role in events for Columbia. And so I remember singing songs that were written years ago and um, it, it, that would be wonderful to feel like, oh, Columbia, which is what the song is called, is, is the generational song. But, and people say, well, this was written right at the beginning of the pandemic mm. and, and, and understanding the meaning behind it. So yeah, I would, the, the, the optimist in me, the dreamer in me thinks that we can all come together. If you're something that's meaningful, we can say, I want that. And you want that. How do we all make that happen? What's been so traumatizing is the two realities of what we think that is. And I know what I believe. And it speaks to what I was talking about before, you know, going back to what I told you about when I was a, a, a teenager or about to become a teenager, uh -huh. you know, my, my, my lessons of empathy and fighting for people and trying to empower and to, and to build people up mm. that you care about and to protect them and love them and be there for them no matter what, and to not allow bullies and angry voices to win the day. And, um, so that's been hard to watch. It does. I mean, it does feel, I mean, you're describing a very personal individual experience, but it feels like we're in a battle royale. At a, at a global scale of dealing with that bullying, that misinformation, that, you know, it's a battle for good versus for whatever, you know, evil. It feels we're at that at a pivotal point in terms of the direction we want to go as humanity. And that, and that COVID has become the punctuation mark that's made us stop and evaluate where we are. And I think without COVID, I mean, we have to, I mean, it's been devastating, but maybe it might have been, a, we might look back on this 20, 30 years from now and say it was a blessing. I think it's a really good point. And I know for me, I have found some pivotal moments and collaborations during this time mm -hmm. that when we are truly able to come out of this and even now as we are coming out of it, I couldn't be more proud to be a part of and more excited about NYC Next that we talked about. Yeah, yeah, well, I was gonna mention, yeah. Which is Musicians United for Social Equity. I'm a founding member of Reflect, the album I was able to create. Mm -hmm. um, all of the young artists that I'm now working with, I'm mentoring, I'm doing online classes. You know, I, I, I was someone who, before this all happened, just, I'm an artist. So what you're going to know about me, you know, is through the art. Mm -hmm. uh, and I realized, you know, I don't want to do too deep a dive, but I, I understand the realities of social media in this world and having a voice 
and activism, huge activism. And it can't just be art. I have to go out and be a leader in whatever way that I can and make change happen and fight alongside my, my brilliant fellow artists. And for things I believe in, I have to do whatever I can to have a, a bigger impact, but to do it also with hope and with possibility to say, you, you have a dream, like I had a dream to be an artist. I want to help you find that. This may not be a life that you thought of or even thought could be for you. How do we make that happen? You, you are a gifted musician. You need to have all the opportunities. I need to be there helping all this happen. And that's, that's been a great privilege and a great discovery for me. And that work has begun. And I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to continuing it, especially when we're able to be in person doing it together. I mean, I was going to ask you about where you want to be when we hit 2030, but I mean, it's, it's maybe a bit too far out. I mean, I'm assuming that you're still collaborating with Brian. Yeah, I mean, I would say Brian uh, has been in, like, he's family and he's taken care of me this last year and I love him dearly. So yeah, we, we have lots to do and I'm excited about all of well, it. Aside from the, the Reflect album, what else is on the near horizon that you can talk about? If everything goes according to plan. <laughs> well, uh, and, and you know, I just want to say it's a good question. In 2030, where do, I, I, I really want to be, uh, I want to be in, in, in a world that is evolved in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. I want to be in a world that's taking care of one another and is solving the big, big, big problems that right now, every day you pick up the newspaper, it just feels like it's getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. You know, the best way I can say it, I, I listened to the, one of the lyrics of Superhero when it opens, sort of setting up the world of the superhero versus the world um, of reality for, for this, this teenager, this comic book. He says, it's basically up above is great and, you know, down below the world is burning. Mm. But when that hit me, the world is burning. We're li it's literally burning. Um, the world is literally burning. And I wanted to stop burning. I wanted 2030 for the world to not be burning. What do I have coming up? I am, um, I've, they've announced Flying Over Sunset, my musical Lincoln Center for the fall. They've announced Jagged Little Pill. Wasn't, wasn't that due to launch before the pandemic? Yeah, so I had two musicals, The Visitor at the Public Theater and Flying Over Sunset at Lincoln Center that were slated to open a day apart. Uh -huh. April 15th, April 16th, 2020. Oh. So The Visitor has not uh, announced plans yet, but Flying Over Sunset has announced resuming story previews in, I think, second week of November and opening second week of December. Wonderful. Jack of Little Pill has announced October 21st as a start date of resuming on Broadway. And we're also doing production in Australia. And I know that there's they're, they're dealing with, with COVID outbreaks and, and trying to to figure all that out. So hopefully our dates will, will stay as they are now. And then there's another musical that, that I'm just madly in love with, almost famous, the adaptation of Cameron Crowe's brilliant. Yeah. Cameron and I, another person who's just become one of the most important people in my life. And I mean, Cameron is someone whose work truly inspired me all those years that you want work to do what that work did for me. And it's just, I pitch myself every time I'm on Zoom with him or in the room with him, getting to, getting to be side by side with him. So we, we created with, with director Jeremy Heron, uh, an adaptation of Almost Famous. We played the Old Globe Theater in the summer of 20, summer and fall of 2019. Went really well. And so I'm hopeful that that will be coming to New York soon. Excellent. I look forward to that. Can we move to the quick fire questions? Yes, we can. Of course. Okay. What, what principles do you stand by? I stand by empathy, kindness, gratitude, mm -hmm. collaboration, Love. It's a perfect collection. We've all 
have to make hard choices in our lives, but what hard choices have you had to make that may have turned out, might have been tough at the time, but did turn out in retrospect to have been the right decision? I'm sure there are a lot of, and the thing that comes to mind is choosing to follow life as an artist because um, I actually had the opportunity to go into something that was led by my economics degree, to go into the financial sector. And it was at a time, it was the mid nineties when they were really, there were a lot of recruiters around and, and there were a lot of, you know, I would see graduates suddenly showing up and say, you know, they're working crazy hours, but they have this life. And, and I was one of the, I could tell when they offered me the job and I said, can I think about it? And they did a double take for the full bit. And I had to, I mean, in retrospect, it wasn't a hard decision, but I didn't know what was in front of me. I was turning down something that felt more stable for this uncertain life as an artist. And I'm so glad that I did. But at the time it was, it was, a, it was a decision. You didn't chase the immediate promise of money, which is great. So, I mean, you're a creative born and bred um, to the heart. Where do you go to discover your new ideas? I go into art. I think that great art inspires, hopefully create art. <laughs> so yeah, I go into my, uh, I go into, and I, I, I always draw inspiration from, from impactful things that, that I get to see here. You think you're an innately curious person? Yeah. I think I'm curious. And then I think I can also be lazy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm definitely curious and I've grown more curious as I've ever older, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it probably helps with children as well. So there to inspire you. You talked about the world's burning. What's one problem that's worth, worth solving? Global warming. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Certainly two nights ago over New York with the sun burning red and the sky obscuring the clouds and the smoke obscuring this, this, the skyline certainly was a sobering moment of reality realizing. It should be as terrifying to us and especially, unfortunately, to the generation that we're leaving this to yeah. as the Cold War was when we were growing up in my opinion. Uh, yeah. If not even greater existential threat along with everything else that's happening. So, I mean, we all want to solve these problems. If you could gather four people from today or from history to sit and discuss how to solve these problems, who would they be? I think Martin Luther King, mm. Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi, and Anne Frank. Oh. Yeah, that's an interesting collection. Okay. Is there a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? Oh. A good question. Maybe just how are you today? Mm-hmm. How are you really today? Yeah, it's a question we could all do. Ask each other. Certainly around the neighborhoods of New York and the cities. I think we all need to support each other in that way. Who makes you reevaluate yourself, or what? I think also great art, mm-hmm. and important people in my life. All of my important relationships all have something for me to take from a conversation or an experience, how I am as a parent, how I am as a husband, how I am as a friend, how I am as a collaborator, how I am as an artist, how I am as an activist, how I am as a leader. Mm. These are all learned. These are all things that I learn from the people I aspire to be. The last guest I interviewed, John Farnham, who works for the Mortgage Family Foundation. He threw a question back at me and said, what do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> and 
it's given me some time for pause and self-reflection. So I'm going to ask you, I think, what would you like your legacy to be? Um, I would like my legacy to be that I spoke to people's hearts. There was something about what I created that people have personal connection to, and it's allowed them to have, they, they go to whatever I've created in moments of need, whether it's to feel good, to feel hope, to feel sad, but to feel something. And perhaps also some of the things that didn't go the way that I, I intended or hoped they would go to, to discover new elements in them. And that happens to all artists. I think, I think we all go through that. And sometimes when you create something in a certain time, looking back on it later, brings new layers to it. And sometimes you would say, well, that wasn't up to the work of what this was, but it's, 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 we don't, we don't live in a vacuum. We don't write in a vacuum and things evolve and things change, things have new meaning. So I, I would like there to be joy and discovery and the comfort in hearing what I've said and, and written and perhaps the way I feel about the artists who impacted me and changed my life. Someone will say, mm -hmm. my life has been enriched because I've discovered Tom Kidd is an artist. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's fair to say that the work you've produced so far, you're well on your way to cementing that legacy. I'm particularly with Columbia. We almost ask quite impossible questions. So what would your advice be to um, someone that's about to go study, uh, start a career that's got a grand ambition, rock star, painter, money trader, whatever, uh, crypto broker, that everyone's saying, forget it, that ambition, that's impossible. You'll never do it. Don't listen to them. Listen to yourself. Listen to your heart. You... This is oxygen for you. If this is how you need to live in the world, then you have to give it a chance, but don't be naive about it. You have to make sure that you set yourself up for whatever happens. I think that for me, again, majoring economics was, was a wonderful backup plan and, and, and gave me just a little sense of, okay, and whatever happens, I have some options. So you don't have to just say, I can't entertain any thoughts of anything else. Cause that's what this has to be. But. Billy Porter said something that continues to stick with me. He said it a couple of weeks ago when he was, he was with us. He was, he was doing a, a, a news Q&A. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, don't let anyone put time limits on your dreams. That's lovely. I thought that that was a really important thing for people to think. It's like, we all have this thing of now. It has to happen now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I, I thought that I'd be putting out my first album when I was in my 20s. And now it's, I'm 47 years old. <laughs> and who knows what it will be. But Yeah, it's probably a better album. It's not an album I could have written in my place. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything has got its time. Things, yeah. Things come to you when they come to you and just don't, yeah. just, just be patient. And mm -hmm. if you believe it can happen and it's what you, you need to sustain who you are and what you want to say and be, then, then you have to believe in it. You have to go after it and just weed out the noise. Cool. That's a great answer. Final few, three quite, leave uh, short questions. At some point, karaoke bar, what's your go-to karaoke song? Kiss by Prince. Yeah, wonderful. We've all spent a lot of time in lockdown watching probably too much uh, movies, documentaries. What's the one you think people might have missed that they should watch? I don't think missed it, but I was knocked out by Ted Lasso. 
it's 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 just wonderful, isn't it? It was, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I I'm a soccer player. I played played my whole childhood football. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> but again, I just loved that it was. It's, it all boils down to me that 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 moment of of the dark sea, mm-hmm. where it it's like the fantastical happens, and you're watching and you think this this is going to go the way I hope it's going to go. It just that doesn't happen, and then it happens. Like, <laughs> the whole show just makes you believe in what I named before and kindness and 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 people doing the right thing and 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 the good element triumphing. It's funny. And series two starts in a couple of days, so it's great. I can't. I know. I know. I can't wait. Okay, a book we like to offer listeners that submit good comments on Instagram or on the website. What book should we offer them? I've been reading a lot, and then at the same time, I'm, what what is it? When I should, but I'll say a book that I just read that I found really interesting was The Premonition by Michael Lewis. Ah, right. Okay, I read that. Yeah. And the final question: Who should we interview next? I think you should interview Michael McElroy. I don't know who Michael McElroy is, but maybe Michael could... McElroy is my good friend who is. Um, just actually stepped down. He's, he, he, he's artistic director and, and founded Broadway Inspirational Voices, who received the Tony Award, I believe in 2019. Michael just became the, the, a chair of the music theater department at the University of Michigan. He's a Tony-nominated actor. Uh, I've worked together. Michael was in Next to Normal, and he starred in Rent, uh, among other roles that he's played. Michael's also one of the founders of Black Theater United. And... He's just an extraordinary artist. Michael also has been a part of NYC Next and Muse. Okay. And Michael and I created a pop-up event last fall when we did Sunday in the Park with George. We did his arrangement with Billy Porter and James Empleyner of Sunday. And after we brought artists together for the first time, the TKTS Steps. And Michael is on Reflect with a beautiful song that, that we wrote together. And um, he's just one of those people that I aspire to be and just always learn from Michael and um, grateful for his presence in my life. And I think that we would get a great deal out of interviewing him. Wonderful. Well, we hit time. So I just have to thank you very much, Tom, for your generosity of time and just being such a wonderful inspiration and empathetic person and for the amazing work that you're doing. Because I don't think we can be understated how critically important it is to people's well-being. So, you know, I just hope that Broadway returns soon and we, and I certainly look forward to listening and sharing um, uh, your album Reflect. So good luck, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. It was a pleasure for me too, and yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Great. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye, Tom. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.